Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Lawmakers interested in the House Speaker position start to emerge. Who are they and how is President Biden reacting to the unprecedented ouster? A judge says former President Trump's team can't question a witness in the civil fraud trial in New York. Why not? Find out what the judge said. Healthcare workers across the country are on strike. This threatens to disrupt medical services for almost 13 million people who will be affected the most. President Biden today making a big announcement on student loan relief. Find out more about what the president says and whether you might qualify. And former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani is planning to sue President Biden. He's pushing back against Biden, calling him a Russian pawn. House Republicans are looking for a new speaker. President Biden is calling for bipartisanship. How could all of this impact Congress's work and funding for Ukraine? Joining us now live is NTD's Iris Tau on Capitol Hill. Iris, what's the latest and how did we get here? Good evening to you. So on Tuesday night, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced that he would not try to get his gavel back after being ousted by a vote of eight Republicans along with all Democrats. So now the path is clear for any Republican to jump into the race. And on Wednesday, we got the first lawmaker to jump into this race, and that was Congressman Jim Jordan. He's a close ally to former President Donald Trump and is a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus. Here's what he said on Wednesday about his priorities. Watch. I think we're a conservative center-right party. I think I'm the guy who can help unite that. I think my politics are entirely consistent with where uh, conservatives and Republicans are across the country. The most pressing issue on Americans' minds is not Ukraine. It is the border situation and it's crime on the street. And in addition to Jim Jordan, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, as well as Congressman Kevin Hearn, have also jumped into this race. So House Republicans have until next Tuesday to decide on their candidates. And on Wednesday, that's the earliest time when they can have a vote on the next speaker. But now we've also heard President Biden weighing in on this on Wednesday, criticizing what he called a poisonous atmosphere in Washington, D.C. He also called on House Republicans to work fast to come up with a budget plan before a November 17th deadline to fund a government and again avoid a government shutdown. Watch. Yeah, we have to get it done in a timely fashion. More than anything, we need to change the poisonous atmosphere in Washington. You know, we have strong disagreements, but we need to stop seeing each other as enemies. And Iris, we only have 41 days left to fund the government, but now apparently the future of the House leadership is up in the air. How confident are we that we can have a new speaker elected next week and what other concerns are there? That's a great question. So, in fact, not a lot of lawmakers are sounding confident that we can have a new speaker elected on next Wednesday. Remember, back in January, it took us 15 rounds to get McCarthy elected as the speaker. So anyone in the race right now does still face an uphill battle. And, in fact, just another subject up in the air is that whether the U.S. will have another aid package for Ukraine, which does face opposition, including by a frontrunner in the race right now, Congressman Jim Jordan. Jordan. So I asked Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today about his take on it. Let's take a look. 
Thank you. One of the lead candidates, um, Congressman Jim Jordan, says he does not support further aid to Ukraine. Is that something that would concern you? And I do have a follow-up. There are strong bipartisan majorities in both the House and Senate for aid to Ukraine. I've spoken to Leader McConnell. We're going to work together to get a big package done. And even in the House, you may remember, when um, Speaker McCarthy put $300 million in for Ukraine in one of the defense bill, in one of the uh, budget bills, there was a move by the hard right to take it out, and it was defeated by over 300 votes. So we have, a, we have large bipartisan majorities in aid for Ukraine, and we're going to work to get that done. And President Biden today also echoed that messaging that he's not concerned about further aid to Ukraine. He also added that he will soon give a major speech on this topic about aid to Ukraine. Back to you. Iris, thank you for the updates. Both Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise have a real shot at becoming the next House Speaker. NTD's Arian Pazdar takes a closer look. Republican Ohio Representative Jim Jordan is trying to become the next Speaker of the House. Jordan has been representing Ohio's 4th District since 2007. He's currently the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He made headlines and gained support earlier this year, investigating the indictments of former President Trump, the immigration crisis and the DOJ's approach to Hunter Biden. Every witness we've talked to said this thing was slow walk and we know why. Jordan was also the founding chair of the House Freedom Caucus a group compromised of members considered to be the most conservative Republicans. Because of those affiliations, some say Jordan has slim chances of gathering enough support to become the next speaker. When asked about Jordan as a possible next speaker, New York Congressman Mark Molinaro on Wednesday referred to somebody else. There are a good number of members. Uh, you know, S Steve Scalise is uh, considering this. There likely will be others. Tennessee Representative Tim Burchett said this when asked about Scalise as a possible next speaker. I love Steve Scalise. Um, he's a great leader. He's a proven leader, and I believe folks would rally around him. Steve Scalise of Louisiana is the House Majority Leader. He's also known for drawing heavy support from other lawmakers from the South, which might be helpful against Jordan from Ohio. However, Scalise was diagnosed with blood cancer earlier this year. The type of cancer he was diagnosed with is very treatable. However, it raises questions if Scalise will be away for extended periods of time. Some other possible candidates are House Majority Whip Tom Emmer. Emmer, however, indicated he'll support Scalise in his bid. Oklahoma Representative Kevin Hearn, who said he's considering a run, and others. Various lawmakers also proposed former President Trump to become Speaker. Trump himself confirmed that on Wednesday, saying he received multiple calls. However, the former president says he's fully focused on his presidential campaign. He added that he's open to supporting Republicans in finding a new Speaker. Arian Pastar. NTD News. Some heated moments at former President Trump's civil trial in New York today as Judge Arthur Engeron repeatedly in interrupted Trump's attorneys as they cross-examined a witness. Our reporter Arlene Richards was in the courtroom during the exchange. Judge Arthur Engeron vigorously pushing the defense to move along faster with their line of questioning about the financial statements. The defense saying they're trying to address the statements year by year. The judge at one point pounding his fist on the desk and saying, quote, this is ridiculous. He also said, quote, lump things together so we don't waste time. I'm not going to let you ask every single line when you can just ask one for all of them. The defense arguing that this line of questioning is crucial to the case. 
Former President Trump said this after the morning session. So we're going down the line, page after page, document after document, and the bottom line is this is rigged. Because the judge knows whatever he's going to do. He claimed the judge is already predisposed to rule against him. A reporter asked him why he is attending the trial. He is not required to be present. Trump responded that he wanted to point out to the press how corrupt it is. He said nobody else seems to be able to do it. Trump left the courthouse after the morning session. The judge held a closed-door meeting before the lunch break. In the afternoon, the state called their second witness, Cameron Harris. At this point, it's unclear whether or not the defense ever completed its questioning of Donald Bender. Tiffany, back to you. Tens of thousands of healthcare workers are striking today across the nation. NTD's Christina Corona has more from the picket lines. We're here in Baldwin Park at the Kaiser Hospital, where more than 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers walked off the job this morning, marking what would be the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history. Negotiations between the coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions and the healthcare provider are ongoing and reportedly making progress, but workers still opted to walk off the job for a scheduled three-day labor strike. The strike started at 6 a.m. local time across numerous Kaiser hospitals and medical facilities in California, Colorado, Oregon, Virginia, Washington State, and Washington, D.C. As a member of the bargaining team, I've sat face to face with Kaiser executives. They are not bargaining in good faith. They are leaving us at the table for hours. They don't care about the short staffing crisis. Many healthcare workers say they are taking on work that requires multiple healthcare workers. Some of us are doing the work of two and three employees because we care about our patients and we definitely don't want them to suffer. We're doing all we can to, to fill in the gap. Oh yeah, I'm a phlebotomist and I draw blood from patients and I'm left alone to do the job of not two phlebotomists but three phlebotomists and not only does that delay patient care, it uh, compromises patient and employee safety. The strike, which is scheduled to last three days, threatens to disrupt medical services for almost 13 million people. However, Kaiser has responded to the strike by stating on their website, We want to reassure you that your care is our top priority. We have contingency plans in place to help ensure you continue to receive safe, high-quality care during this period. They go on to say, Our hospitals, emergency departments, and pharmacies will remain open during the strike and will be staffed by our physicians, trained and experienced managers and staff. As of now, the strike is set to end Saturday with workers in Southern California returning to the hospitals by 6 a.m. Christina Corona, NTD News, Baldwin Park. Who will this strike impact the most and why are we seeing so many strikes this year? We spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma to explore. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, great to be here, Tiffany. It seems Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers are expected to strike across numerous locations in the U.S. Which states will be hit the hardest? 
Yeah, so first of all, the striking employees total about 40% uh, of Kaiser Permanente's staff, uh, which means uh, about 60% of employees will actually stay on the job. Um, as you mentioned, uh, strike will target many locations. Uh, that's including Kaiser hospitals and uh, medical offices, uh, including places like California, Colorado, Oregon, uh, Virginia, District of Columbia, and Washington State. As I mentioned, about 60% of Kaiser's uh, workforce will remain on the job. And the reason for that is because Georgia, Hawaii, and most of Washington state would actually not be affected. But in Virginia and Washington, D.C., uh, only optometrists and pharmacists will go on strike. Um, but the, the, the impact on patients in, in California, Colorado, uh, Oregon, and parts of Washington state will be more substantial uh, compared to other places. I want to touch on that last point. So what will be the impact on patients across the states? So the health care company Kaiser uh, says that hospitals and emergency departments will actually stay open during the strike and, and that the company has already made contingency plans in place to ensure members continue to receive safe, high-quality care for the duration of the strike. Now, during the strike, it's possible that it, it may expand its network to include non-Kaiser Permanente hospitals if patients need to be uh, redirected or transferred. And non-emergency and elective services may have to be rescheduled, uh, but of course, they will contact patients in advance if it needs to be. Um, now, on top of all this, doctors, hospital managers, and registered nurses will not be taking part in the strike. Uh, the striking workers include vocational nurses, emergency department technicians, uh, radiology technicians, x-ray technicians, and uh, hundreds of other positions. Uh, Kaiser Permanente services uh, nearly 13 million patients and operates uh, 39 hospitals and more than 600 medical offices across eight states and the District of Columbia. So there will be some impact. And Don, zooming out a bit, why have there been so many strikes this year? Yeah, well, Tiffany, you're definitely right about that. Uh, there has been over 300,000 workers involved in work stoppages and strikes through August this year. And according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, 2023 is, could be on track to becoming the busiest year for strikes since 2019. Um, so I think there's a combination of factors here. You know, like a, a tight U.S. labor market uh, and the expiring of union contracts and high living costs. So all these factors play into each other. Workers want higher wages, of course. And on the other on the other side of the coin, companies uh, want to make profits. So, you know, it, it's a tough balance here. And when neither side compromises, it, it's more often than not we get a strike. Indeed. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, as always. Thank you, Tiffany. Student loan payments resumed this week for some, but others can expect some relief as the White House continues to roll out loan cancellation programs. This comes despite criticism from those who say that the administration's loan forgiveness is unfair to those footing the bill. NTD's Melina Weiskup is at the White House with more. Despite the Supreme Court striking down President Biden's sweeping student loan forgiveness plan, the White House continues to find ways to cancel debt, including with this latest approach they're taking, which targets specific groups of people. This includes public service workers, people like 
teachers or military service members. Another group that's included here is Americans with Disabilities. A third group that's affected by this is, are those who are involved in the income driven repayment plan and have been making payments for 20 years. The White House says this will impact around 125 thousand people. President Biden at the White House today arguing his point of view about why this program is needed, despite critics who argue that it's unfair, especially to those Americans who have to foot the bill with higher taxes. Here's Biden. This kind of relief is life changing for individuals and their families, but it's good for our economy as a whole as well. And we could see even more action from President Biden in this area in the time ahead, although his future plans here are not entirely clear at the moment. Now, he could continue to take the approach that he's been taking, that is targeting specific groups of borrowers. Next week, a committee will meet for the first time to discuss a future plan around this, one that could perhaps avoid some of those legal challenges that President Biden was faced with when trying to cancel debt on a larger scale. Reporting from the White House, Melina Weiskup. NTD News. Former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani is planning to sue President Biden for defamation. He says this is because Biden falsely referred to him as a Russian pawn. Being called a Russian pawn and being called by uh, the leading candidate of the Democratic Party, facilitator of Russian disinformation, is an extraordinarily damaging thing. Giuliani made the announcement today outside the Merrimack County Superior Courthouse in Corcord, New Hampshire. During a 2020 presidential debate, Biden said that Giuliani is, quote, being used as a Russian pawn. He's being fed information that is Russian that is not true. Giuliani said being called a Russian pawn damaged his law practice, his consulting business, and his podcast on YouTube. Giuliani's lawsuit comes a week after he was sued by Hunter Biden for sharing data from his laptop computer. Up next, a decades-old mystery reignited. Rapper Tupac Shakur's murder suspect appears in court. Find out what happened. A big update to California's misinformation law. Doctors are no longer under pressure to follow state narratives on COVID-19. Find out why the state walked back the directive. And a judge rules that parents get to decide what pronoun their child is, not the school. This comes after a school district refused parents' demands. And the California school board president receives death threats. One email said, watch yourselves. You may need to hide your kids, wives, and anything you love. Find out more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. A significant development in the Tupac Shakur murder case. Dwayne Kefty Davis appeared in a Nevada court today. He's a prime suspect in the infamous 1996 shooting. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. The alleged killer of rap icon Tupac Shakur had his first day in court on Wednesday. The former Southside Compton Crip gang member Dwayne Keefe D. Davis was arrested last week in Las Vegas for the murder of Shakur. The rapper was killed in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas in 1996. The Nevada judge addressed Davis at his appearance. Mr. Davis, sir, have you retained counsel to represent you in this case? Yes, ma'am. Who have you retained? 84. 
Okay, and is that person going to be here today? Yeah, you need a continuance for two weeks. All right, we're going to continue this matter for two weeks on a Thursday. That date is? October 19th at 9 a.m. Okay, we'll be back on that date. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Surprisingly, Davis has been openly discussing firsthand details of the 1996 shooting for several years now. Here's Davis in a 2019 Vlad TV interview explaining the moment he saw Shakur on the night of the shooting. And he happened to be hanging out the window. He's hanging out the window like he was in a parade. Tupac. Yeah, he was. So what happens next? And we just came. I ain't gonna go into details like that, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know, you got it in a book. And in his book, Davis even said he provided the gun used to kill Shakur. And Tupac Shakur's stepbrother, Moprim Shakur, shared his thoughts after Davis was arrested last week. If you're following up on, uh, on, on a crime and you have a, a main suspect, this guy who they just indicted has been with him, has been telling the whole the same story the whole time for 27 years. Why are you just finally now considering that, you know, he was so close to the number one suspect? Now, what about Suge Knight, who was driving the car Shakur was in when he was shot? TMZ recently interviewed him from prison, where he's serving a 28-year sentence for manslaughter. And Knight said he would not testify in the case. Me and Keith D played on the same part on the football team. And whatever the circumstances, if he had an involvement with anything, if he didn't have any involvement with anything, who want to see? I wouldn't wish somebody going to prison on my worst enemy. Davis says he and Suge Knight are the only two people still alive who were present during the shooting. Davis's next day in court will be on October 19th. Jason Perry, NTD News. A New York City activist and poet was stabbed to death early Monday morning. The attack happened next to a bus stop in Brooklyn. And please be warned, this story contains footage you may find distressing. Ryan Carson and his girlfriend were on their way home from a wedding. According to surveillance footage, a man passed them and started kicking scooters parked nearby. The man approached Carson and his girlfriend in a threatening manner before stabbing Carson repeatedly. Carson died before paramedics could take him to a hospital. The suspect then ran away. Moments later, the footage shows an unknown woman entering the scene. Police believe the woman and the assailant know each other. No arrests have been made. Police issued a wanted poster showing a close-up of the suspect wearing a black champion sweatshirt. No murder weapon has been recovered. The suspect reportedly threw the weapon in a pile of trash before quickly going back to retrieve it. A catastrophic bus accident in Italy. 21 people are dead and more are injured after a crash last night in northern Italy near Venice. The bus was carrying tourists from all over Europe when it veered off the road and fell close to railway lines. Officials said the vehicle fell around 50 feet onto electricity lines and caught fire. The driver, who also died, was reportedly feeling sick before the crash. A statewide reversal of a law in California. Governor Gavin Newsom has now done away with portions of a so-called misinformation law targeting doctors, signed into law by his own hand last October. Under that law, doctors would have been forced to follow government narratives on things like masks and vaccines or risk losing their medical licenses. 
Moments ago, we spoke with Laura Powell, an attorney with Californians for Good Governance. Laura Powell, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Now that portions of California's COVID misinformation law have been done away with, what's next for you and your clients who are actually suing the state over this very law? Yes, I'm co-counsel with the New Civil Liberties Alliance on a case with five plaintiffs who are all doctors who challenged uh, this California censorship law. We got in a preliminary injunction in January, so the law has not been enforced uh, since it passed last year, came into force January 1st, and just a few weeks later, we had a preliminary injunction. So now we're anticipating, uh, Newsom has now signed the law uh, repealing AB 2098. It will take effect on January 1st. I imagine the state will now move to have our case dismissed um, as it's moot. And I assume that our lawsuit was part of the motivation for them repealing AB 2098 because they saw the writing on the wall and saw they weren't likely to win, that this law was going to be declared unconstitutional and they're hoping to avoid a legal precedent that would bind in the future to make a definitive statement about how this law violated uh, the constitutional rights of doctors. And on that note, how would this law have impacted the doctor-patient relationship if it had stayed in law? Well, I always thought that a large part of this law was sort of the statement it made to tell doctors that they should be afraid uh, of say, speaking their mind and telling patients what they truly think, that they needed to stick to the government narrative. So that chilling effect on their speech would happen regardless of whether or not they, the medical board actually used the law to go after doctors. But what happens there is that the doctor-patient relationship gets damaged because patients can't trust their doctors. And if they, if they believe that the doctors aren't telling them their honest opinion, but are telling them what they think they need to say to protect their medical licenses. So that erosion of the doctor-patient relationship was one of the many reasons why this was a bad policy. And in your view, given this was enacted into law in the first place, could this happen again down the road? Well, without a definitive uh, statement from the courts that it's unconstitutional, we have the preliminary injunction, but that wasn't a complete uh, opinion from the courts, it could happen again. Although I think what is happening now is we're gonna see a change of tactics. I think repealing this law was a victory for us. We won the battle, but there's still the war to win. And I think the state is changing its tactics. We saw the bill's author um, stating that they could still go after misinformation from doctors based on pre-existing law. And I know of one case where this is happening that a doctor who said things like, masks don't prevent the spread of viruses, is having their license threatened, not under AB 2098, but under the pre-existing general law that says that um, a doctor who's negligent could lose their license. So I think we're, this is a recognition from the state that this tactic was a failure, but I think they are still going to look for ways to try to control what people say on the topic of COVID. And Laura, you actually touched on this a little bit, but given that medical treatment has for ages been tailored for the individual, do you see misinformation laws like this one disrupting that patient-doctor relationship in the future? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question, is that the, the ethical obligations of a doctor go to their patient. And what one thing I've noticed, you, you can see sometimes there's a switch of language where they say that the doctors have an obligation to public health. 
and that their obligation isn't so much to the patient, but what they believe is best for everyone. And this isn't how medical ethics has worked in the past. And that seriously causes, if you're a patient and you believe that your doctor is not telling you to get vaccinated, for example, because they think it's best for you, but because they think it's best for others, that is really going to undermine your trust in your doctor. And what would that mean for that relationship going forward? Well, if we, you know, if people can't trust their doctors, I think we're going to see this spill over to other areas beyond COVID. I think we already are. We see um, all kinds of vaccination rates for other diseases with other types of vaccines that have been around a long time have gone way down. And that's because there's a loss in trust. Uh, there's certainly a loss in trust with the FDA, the CDC, the medical establishment as a whole. But I think some people really still trust their doctors if they have a personal relationship with them. And I think that's why we're seeing the state trying to go after those doctors to try to control them. Because as long as the doctors have that trust with their patients, they have that power. You know, They can undermine the government narrative through that one-on-one -on -one relationship that a doctor has with their patient. A lot here. Well, Laura Powell, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Children who take puberty blockers risk poor mental health, according to a UK study. Out of the 44 children studied from ages 12 to 15, 34% of those who took puberty blockers self-reported declining mental health. The puberty blocker examined in the study is called triptorelin. It's used to control the hormones in people's bodies, and some common side effects include depression, nausea, and hot flashes. The result of the study may add to the epidemic of deteriorating mental health globally. Nearly 15% of young people have a mental health disorder, according to a survey last year. Another study last year found that in the U.S., almost 22% of children have at least one mental health condition. Changing children's pronouns violates parental rights. This is according to a judge's ruling this week. A school district in Wisconsin had ordered teachers and staff to refer to students by whatever pronouns or names they chose. In response, two sets of parents sued the Kettle Moraine School District. One set of parents had a daughter who went to the district's middle school. When the parents insisted that staff refer to her using her legal name and female pronouns, the school refused. Judge Michael Maxwell wrote that the school district violated parental rights and that the parents have the right to choose for their children. Over 3,500 students attend school in the school district. It has 11 schools, including elementary, middle, and high schools. Death threats against a California school board president. Comments like, enjoy your weekend, it could be your last, were sent by email after the board decided to fly only the American and California flags on campus. NTD's David Lamb speaks with Ryan Jurgensen, who was granted a temporary restraining order for his safety. Uh, so first, I'll start off by saying that uh, everything I'm saying is my, my own thoughts. It's not speaking on behalf of the school district or the school board. Uh, regarding the death threats and threatening emails, there's been, I don't know, maybe three or four that were serious enough to uh, take considerations and report it to law enforcement, uh, and that's being investigated. Uh, but there were also quite a few emails and letters that came that were supportive and um, kind. Well, Dr. Jurgensen 
were you anticipating or expecting this type of reaction? No, of course not. Uh, I, I'm a school board president at the school that my own children go to. My whole reason for being on the school board and seeking that position two years ago was because I have four children attending the school and I have another one going. Other media sources are framing this as a pride flag ban. Can you clarify on can you clarify more on why that could be a misconception? Uh, I, I'm disappointed that certain groups want to make it about them. Uh, there are other groups who have said they want their flags flown. Uh, this is not singling out any particular group. That's not what this discussion is about. But yeah, there are uh, certain groups and special interests that want to make it about them. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I would love for this school to be about every school child, every student. What alternatives do you think that uh, the school could take instead of flying flags in order for uh, students to feel more included? Let's focus on uniting under the flag of the United States of America and the patriotism and nationalism there. And, and let's, let's work together from there. Let's work on education. Let's work on these things that unite us and bring us together. Dr. Ryan Jurgensen, board president of the Sunol Glen Unified School District. Thank you again for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. When we return, taking a closer look at the much-anticipated House Speaker election, who's got enough support to win and reactivate the chamber. Over a million rounds of ammunition on their way to Ukraine. The U.S. is transferring the weapons after seizing them from Iranian smugglers. And a Russian journalist is sentenced to prison for an unusual protest. Find out what she did when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump is in day three of his business fraud trial in New York. Judge Arthur Engeron repeatedly interrupted the Trump team's cross-examination of state witness Donald Bender. Over 75,000 unionized Kaiser Permanente workers walked off the job in multiple states. It's the largest healthcare worker strike in U.S. history. The Biden administration is canceling another $9 billion in student loans. The plan covers 125,000 Americans who are in public service, Americans with disabilities, and others who've made 20 years' worth of payments. After ousting Congressman Kevin McCarthy, House Republicans plan to hold a speaker's candidate forum next Tuesday. So far, Congressman Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise have officially entered the race. And to go deeper into that much-anticipated House Speaker election, we spoke with Robert Henneke, attorney and executive director of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Robert Henneke, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Following Kevin McCarthy's historic ouster as House Speaker, the question of who's next is now looming large. The names up right now seem to be Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise. Do either of these have the support needed to become the next Speaker? Well, whoever is the Speaker is going to have to garner the uh, near-unanimous agreement of the House Republican Caucus. One thing that I saw that was attributed to former Speaker McCarthy 
after he was ousted yesterday in the, the conference meeting afterwards was he urged the Republican caucus to reach an agreement privately to only then have one public vote, uh, as opposed to what he went through, which was 15 rounds of voting, which initially then elected him speaker in January. So it's a math issue. You can have a small uh, handful of Republicans that can deny the next speaker the majority, uh, and they're just going to have to work through that in coming to a near unanimous consensus on who will be the next Speaker of the United States House. And Republicans now have a week to appoint whoever is next. How will this impact Congress, especially as they work to fund the government before this next November deadline? We're running out of time. I mean, last weekend, you saw that conservatives had a minor victory and that they were able to obtain a 45-day extension of the funding for the United States government, where uh, Chuck Schumer and the Biden administration and the moderates had wanted a year-long extension of spending, which would basically have have uh, ended the current fight over, over spending and the debate that's going on in Congress right now. And with uh, the distraction of yesterday, uh, and removing the Speaker of the House and not having a Speaker now for at least another week, we're losing precious time where uh, conservatives and policymakers, rather than figuring out who's going to be procedurally the head of the, the House, should be working on how to pass the appropriations bill to cut spending, to address the border crisis and other top priorities of our country, and to actually do the business of the American people. Now, in terms of the next speaker, if the Republicans can't come to an, an agreement, could we actually see a Democratic speaker despite being the minority? You know, it also came out yesterday in Speaker McCarthy's post uh, remarks that the Democrats had approached him with a deal that they would have delivered the votes to keep him in the speakership. And Speaker McCarthy uh, stayed loyal to the Republican majority, and I think promises he made in being elected when he turned down that deal and knowing that in doing so was going to lead to his removal as being speaker. So it would be unprecedented uh, in for our, our federal government if you had this kind of brokered speakership there. Uh, and I think it's unlikely. I think the Republican caucus would know that that would destroy the very power of their majority that they've worked hard to elect uh, if they gave that power over to the Democrats to basically uh, broker a, a speaker who would then be beholden as much to the left uh, as to the moderate right. And now there's actually a Texas Republican who's pushing for Trump to be the next speaker. And the Constitution doesn't say you have to be in the House to run as speaker. Trump himself hasn't ruled that out. How would that work? Could he actually be speaker? And how would that impact his run as president? I think it's unlikely. More of a, an attention-grabbing suggestion than anything else. President Trump was asked about it. Sure, he didn't dismiss it. Uh, but we know that he's focused on running for the nomination for the Republican Party uh, to pursue being reelected as president. But you're right. Technically, in the, in the United States Constitution, the Speaker of the House does not have to be an elected member of the House. President Donald Trump could do it if he got 218 votes in the House uh, to elect him Speaker. You could do it or I could do it. But I think realistically, we know that it's going to be a current member of Congress 
which right now the two candidates are Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise. There may be more, but it's going to be one of those, and it's going to be a Republican that will ultimately be chosen uh, to continue to, to represent and lead uh, the House of Representatives. Robert Henneke, thank you so much for your time. Next, the U.S. is sending seized Iranian ammunition to Ukraine. This comes as Congress is still in disputes on whether to continue funding the war-torn nation in the upcoming year. Officials announced today that more than one million rounds of ammunition have already been transferred on Monday, and thousands more are on the way. Last December, the U.S. Navy caught a small fishing vessel smuggling weapons from Iran to Yemen in violation of a U.N. resolution. Similar boat raids have taken place regularly since then. The U.S. captured thousands of rifles and millions of rounds of ammunition. The Justice Department began seeking civil forfeiture of the seized weapons back in March. And the legal ownership eventually came through later in July. Over in Russia, a court has sentenced a journalist to jail for protesting the Ukraine war on TV. She has been given eight and a half years in absentia. The journalist burst into a news broadcast with a placard that read, Stop the war and they're lying to you. This was shortly after the war began. She and her daughter left Russia for an unspecified European country a year ago after escaping house arrest. Coming up, overindulging children has many consequences and affects how they'll grow up. We speak with psychologists who deal with the issue. And in basketball news, Michael Jordan is generally regarded as the greatest ever. But now in retirement, his financial success puts him ahead of his peers yet again. Find out how when we return. Welcome back. Overindulging children has many consequences, such as a lack of responsibility, financial dependency, poor self-control, and social problems, greatly affecting the adults they become. NTD's MSG talks with child psychologists who deal with this in their practice. According to psychologists, overindulging children can lead them to have a lack of responsibility, a sense of entitlement, poor self-control, unrealistic expectations, materialism, health issues, social difficulties, anxiety, financial dependency, and shallow values. It is giving kids more than what is necessary. So overdoing it. Ellen Broughton is a psychologist and the author of Bright Kids Who Couldn't Care Less. She says overindulging children can take the form of buying them too many material possessions or giving them what they want to eat when they want it. She says she believes all parents are a little guilty in all these ways. When parents feel like they're overindulging kids, it's usually because they mean well, they want their kids to be happy or because they're tired and they just don't want to deal with the fussing. Eileen Kennedy Moore is the author of Growing Feelings, a kid's guide to dealing with emotions about friends and other kids. She says parents have to set boundaries that are in the child's best interest even if the child is initially unhappy with them. One question that you can ask yourself is, is doing this for my kid preventing them from learning developmentally typical skills? Or is doing this for my kid making me feel resentful? Is doing this for my kid 
hurting other members of the family? When we ask ourselves these questions, we can make better choices. Overindulgence can mean the parent is too concerned about the child not doing well, making them join every sports team, being over-involved in school performance, and putting them into every club and organization. So that child who feels like, well, I'm entitled to all of this attention and all of these material things, but at the same time, I really don't care about doing any of it on my own or getting it on my own, and that's where the real problems are. Broughton says she frequently sees this in her practice. Her clients are afraid their children won't do well and want them to excel. She says parents should figure out what naturally motivates their children or have them get motivated on their own. Emma Shi, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with another milestone for Michael Jordan. That's right, Tiff, generally regarded as the greatest basketball player of all time, or at least right there with LeBron James, Jordan is the first athlete to make the Forbes 400 list of wealthiest Americans. The six-time NBA champion has an estimated net worth of $3 billion, putting him at number 379. Now, amazingly, most of his earnings have come off the court. The five-time MVP made roughly $90 million in salary during his career, but only twice was he the highest paid player in the league. Yet his contract with Nike, signed back in 1984, may be his biggest source of wealth. This past fiscal year, for example, he was paid some $260 million. Now, in addition to endorsement deals with Gatorade, Haynes, and Upper Deck, Jordan recently sold his majority ownership stake in the Charlotte Hornets, which was valued at $3 billion. This after purchasing it for just $175 million back in 2010. And in NFL news, injured Jets star quarterback Aaron Rodgers hasn't closed the door on returning this season. The four-time MVP said Tuesday on the Pat McAfee show that he's well ahead of normal protocols that call for six weeks wearing a boot. He said he was wearing shoes after just 13 days. The 39-year-old tore his Achilles back on September 11, an injury that typically requires a six to nine-month rehab. Said the former Super Bowl champion of his mindset, I believe in the power of intention, I believe in prayer, I believe in your mental status and the power of will. I believe in making room for the miraculous to happen. During the interview, Rodgers, who previously said he was unvaccinated, also poked fun at Chiefs All-Pro tight end Travis Kelsey, calling him Mr. Pfizer after Kelsey starting commercials promoting the COVID vaccine. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, a pair of baseball playoff games are on as Arizona looks to eliminate Milwaukee on the road, while Miami plays at Philadelphia looking to extend the series. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, over to you. And this just in from baseball's postseason, the Texas Rangers have beaten the Tampa Bay Rays 7-1 to to sweep the series. They'll move on to face the Baltimore Orioles in the next round. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.